Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the, I guess, end-of-the-year episode. We already had a real end-of-the-year episode, but this is the final one of 2018. Yeah, it was going to be so close to the end of the year, we decided to do our ranking of the games before everybody made their holiday purchases and all that. We figured that was a better time for an end-of-the-year episode than literally the day before New Year's. And today we're reviewing Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, one that I did a playthrough of on the One Stop Co-op Shop channel, gosh, a a while ago, like almost a month ago, but we've had so many uh, new games at the end of the year and also just other things to do recordings on that... It's taken us a little while to actually get it reviewed. Yeah, I wanted to get a few more plays of it before we recorded it as well, so I'm glad I got that extra time to get it in. And our design discussion this week is going to be on story-based cards. So if you don't know what we mean by that, there are a lot of games now that use a deck of cards to tell a story, and they might not go in sequential order. You might not read one, then two, then three, but this game has that, and we'll talk more about it in our design discussion at the end of the episode. Yeah, and that's one that's especially close to us because one of our current designs that hopefully will be happening next year uses those pretty significantly, so should be interesting to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, that's kind of the whole point of this podcast for us is talking about things that we're working our way through so we can, you know, help ourselves by having these discussions. Absolutely. All right, so let's jump in. I'll talk about the theme of Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, which... <laughs> is pretty much the same as the theme of Arkham Horror 1st and 2nd Edition and most of the other games in the uh, Arkham Files Lovecraft universe that Fantasy Flight publishes. So this is another game based on the uh, H.P. Lovecraft horror stories and the kind of expanding mythos since then. Arkham Horror 1st and 2nd Edition were both set in the town of Arkham, Massachusetts, the fictional town, And you're trying to stop some ancient old one, like Cthulhu or one of the other favorites, from breaking through and destroying the world by running around the town, fighting monsters, solving mysteries, and getting items, getting more powerful. Eldritch Horror kind of turned that on its head. That was the previous game in what you might consider this series by expanding it to the entire world and giving the game a much bigger scope. But this one, uh, Arkham 3rd Edition, goes back to basics, and you're just running around the town of Arkham. And you'll play in one of four scenarios, and each one kind of has its own storyline and its own main antagonist. But in the end, it's it's kind of the same old, same old, the basic kind of Arkham Horror-style stuff that Fantasy Flight tends to do. So as Mike said, there are four scenarios in the game, and they each have very different theme and flavor to them. You know, you may have certain monsters in one and different monsters in another one. You're always fighting against a different great old one. But the goal of the game is typically very similar. It's collect these clue tokens, kill monsters, while preventing doom from spreading throughout Arkham. The game is played very simply. There are four different phases of the game. The first phase is the action phase, and this is where the players are going to be taking their actions. Doing things like moving, warding off doom that's already on the board, attacking monsters, evading monsters doing research so that you can understand the clues that you've already collected. One of the main ones is also focusing in this game. And when you focus a character, you're adding a token, which gives you basically plus one in one of your stats in the game. And these stats are very important because the whole game is basically revolved around these skill tests. 
So you may have a strength stat of four. If you're going to do an attack action, that means you roll four dice, and on fives and sixes, you hit. For every hit you do, monsters have a certain amount of life, and then, you know, you'll remove them. A lot of times when you resolve tests, though, maybe you're testing your lore to do something. You really, a lot of times, only need one success, so one, five, or six to actually succeed. Now, there are things that mess with this. You can get blessed, which makes it so you hit on four, fives, and sixes. You can get cursed, so you only hit on sixes. But for the most part, that's how you're going to resolve a lot of tests in the game. So the benefit of these focus tokens is not only does it give you plus one in whatever stat you decide to use it on, but it also lets you discard it at some point to re-roll one dice while you're taking a test. So if you just really need to pass something, it gives you a little bit of mitigation there as well. So that's going to be the meat of the game as you take in your actions. Every character is going to take two actions. You don't have to go around the table. You can do it in any order you'd like. And once all players have taken their two actions, then you're going to move on to the monster phase, where the monsters are basically going to move around the board, do some bad stuff, and try to attack the characters and generally just get in your way. The third phase is the encounter phase, and you're probably familiar with this if you've played any of the Arkham Horror games in the past or Eldritch Horror. Wherever location you're at, you are going to flip up a card and read some kind of a story that happens at that location. And typically you're going to do a skill test and try to get some kind of reward, whether it be items or magic items or spells or allies. So once you've completed the test and then everybody's going to do their tests around the table, then you move on to the mythos phase. And this is unique to Arkham Horror 3rd Edition. The Mythos phase, basically you have a bag full of both good and bad effects, and each player, in turn order, is going to draw two tokens out of this bag. They're things like spawning monsters or spreading doom, but they're also things like getting clues in this bag as well. And the big one is the gate burst, and when that happens, you draw a card and add one doom to each location on that tile, and then you're going to shuffle up all the cards that have previously spread Doom and add it to the back of the deck again. So when you're drawing Doom, you're going to draw it from the same place. So similar to a pandemic where the cards you've already spawned are going to spawn in that place again. And that's the meat of the game. Basically, you're going to take your actions, the monsters are going to go, then you have your encounters, and then you have the mythos phase. Every encounter is driven by these story cards, so whenever you solve whatever it tells you to do, then you move on to the next story card until you eventually win, or enough doom builds up where you're eventually going to lose. Thanks, Peter. So for those who are not familiar, we are going to go through uh, each of us our list of five core design decisions or core aspects of the game that we think are really important about it. Uh, They might be good, they might be bad, might be a mix. And we'll count down from our number five, the uh, least important of those five still very important design choices, down to uh, our number one. And then we'll finish with our overall thoughts and again get to the design discussion. So to get us started, my number five is, uh, as Peter mentioned, these clue tokens and how they uh, kind of seed clue cards into the encounter decks for locations. And this is a, a straight up pro for me. I really think this is kind of the most clever version of the the clue finding that's been done in any of these uh, this series of games. I like that instead of the clue being something you can like actively get and you can count on automatically encountering when you go to the place, instead you have to wait for it to come up and kind of like stay there for a while until you actually find the clue, which seems very thematic, but also uh, gives you some like tactical choices to make in terms of where you move. 
And then also, uh, you need to take a research action to actually get the clues to go on to usually like the, the main card for the scenario and kind of uh, get something good to happen, uh, progress towards winning the scenario. And I like that thematically as well. I'm an old Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, and it did remind me a bit of when they would find out something about the creature of the week and then have to go to the library and kind of find out the actual specifics about it. It always felt a little strange in something like Eldritch where you would, like, see a weird face and you'd get a clue token. Then you'd just go to some magical place and that clue token would somehow stop some curse. Whereas here, just adding that extra action, while it uh, also kind of gives you another tactical choice to make of how long you want to hold on to clues and when you want to uh, take that action to send them up to the scenario sheet. I also like the thematic idea of taking the crazy things that are happening to you and actually taking the time to figure out what they mean and what their significance is. Yeah, and one of the cool things about it, too, is it makes every space, those encounters there, correlate specifically to that location. So if you're in the police station, for example, it's going to be police station-y type stuff that happens. So you're either going to find weapons, whatever else, and you may find a clue as well. And those clue cards are also tied directly in to whatever scenario you're playing as well. So... That's kind of neat. I don't have those things on my list, but I I do agree that that is a neat way that they seeded the clue cards in. Yeah, and and I'm going to talk about this a lot, but it does lead to a sort of consistent theme going on with them being tied to the scenario, but I'll talk about that more later. Cool. All right, well, my number five is that it just has a lot of simple mechanisms to the game. So the play raid cards themselves are amazing, On one side, it tells you what the four phases are and exactly how to go through it. On the other side, it tells you your possible actions. I really like a good player aid, so that makes it real simple to not only teach, but also to play. If you ever have a question, you can look at the card. And it even goes through on the player aid those intricacies of the thing. So, for example, when you are doing a ward test and trying to remove those doom tokens for the board, if you ever remove two, you get... A remnant, which is this thing that you can spend later on to either cast spells or sometimes you could sell them, whatever else. But it actually covers that on the player aid. And I just love how put together that is and how simple it is to teach and learn. The other thing that goes along with that is low downtime. Because you're only doing two actions on your turn, there really isn't a lot of downtime. And players can actually take their turn in any order as well, which is similar to the simultaneous actions. And a lot of times you can do your thing simultaneously. So I really like that, which just keeps you into the game. So it's kind of a lot of things wrapped in one. But for me, it's just these simple mechanisms that keep you involved in the game the whole time. All right, Mike, what's your number four? So my number four goes with something you just mentioned, the the Doom Tokens. This is a mixed one for me. So uh, three out of the four scenarios that come in the base game have the idea of anomalies, where if one neighborhood of locations gets too many Doom Tokens, then this big anomaly goes on it. And then all your encounters in that location, it's kind of like the the other world encounters in previous uh, Arkham and Eldritch games. But all your encounters become these anomaly encounters that are, again, tied to the scenario you're playing. So that part's pretty cool. I like how you can see at a glance, like, which places are in most dire need of aid. And I like how the anomalies change the geographical feeling of locations and make some places kind of feel more dangerous. And I like the thematically linked encounters, save as the clue tokens. What I don't love is... 
the game does have a problem of ramp up in that there is not a consistent ramp up in difficulty intention. And I think the one of the major reasons for that is uh, the Doom and the warding action. Warding away Doom tokens is often fairly easy, and it's not too much of a challenge if you have at least one or two good characters for warding. It's not too much of a challenge to keep warding under control. And, you know, I've been in several games where it kind of feels a bit like I achieve a stasis where the game's not getting harder or easier. I'm just... It almost feels like a Euro game, like a pandemic-ish kind of game, where I'm just kind of running around, surviving until the clues come to me. And that's not automatically a negative thing, and some players might like it a lot, but it did give the game a little bit too much of a Euro feel, and also made it not feel as tense as I would have liked, and not feel as difficult as I would have liked. And I blame a lot of that on the Doom tokens and how they work. Yeah, my next point ties into that a little bit. My number four is I put Swingy Difficulty. And this is both for player count as well as like the blessed and cursed cards that come up. So if you get blessed, you hit on four pluses instead of five pluses. And if you get cursed, you're only hitting on sixes, which is a huge deal. And whether you get blessed or cursed is pretty random throughout the game. Certainly, you know, you might have to pass a test or whatever to get there. But drawing those cards seems to be pretty random, whether you get them. And it makes a huge difference in the difficulty of the game. As well as there are many items in the game, like some items, there's both a ally that you can get and an item you can get that can give you a whole nother action. Well, if you're only getting two actions normally, getting a third action is huge. And then there's, of course, weapons that are way better than others. So it is, it is pretty swingy. Now, the cool part about that is there is a ramp up to the game. At the beginning of the game, your characters feel very, very weak, and you have a hard time doing anything except kind of what you're good at. Each character kind of comes out of the gate pretty good at one thing, but as you're getting items throughout the game, it seems pretty easy to specialize in kind of everything, which is needed because in a solo game, you would only have one character, and... In higher player count games, though, you're not going to have as many turns to do that. Because in the Mythos phase, everybody's drawing two chits out of the bag. And so the ramp up happens much faster. The difficulty happens much quicker. And so that's the other part of the swingy difficulty. I think in higher player count games, it is way harder. Because in a five-player game, you have like ten bad things happening at once. And in a solo game, you're only having two at once. It sounds like it should balance out, but it really doesn't. Having a bunch of things hit at once means you're more likely to get anomalies and you're more likely to get bad stuff happening on the board. So for me, I I wish they would have focused on that player count a little more. One player seems way too easy. Once you ramp up, it's like you're almost unstoppable. And then for higher player counts, you never get that high ramp up. So my number four is swingy difficulty. And I I agree with all of that. The only thing I'll say is I don't think the curse card is that bad because uh, it is a change from previous games where like you'd have to hope that it would go away at the end of a round. Now, the second that you pass a skill test, it goes away. So I've always been able to get rid of it basically the same term I got it, but just by taking the thing I'm best at that I'm already rolling like five or six dice at and just going and doing something that will get rid of it easily. I think the blessing is a much bigger problem because that's also been changed, so that it only goes away if you fail a test, and when you're hitting on 50% of the dice and your character could be pretty strong anyway. I've had games where I've been blessed for like a full half of the game or more, and I've never failed a single test, and it just seems a little silly sometimes. 
Well, yeah, I've gotten it on the first or second turn and literally kept it the whole game. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever lost a blessing because you can do so many things to reroll. And if you're hitting 50% of the time, yeah, one time I had to go out to nine dice before I got my one success, but I ended up getting it. And, you know, I had to discard some focus tokens, things like that, but it was way worth it to keep that hitting on 50% of the time. So the curse does go away pretty easily because hitting on six pluses isn't that hard when you only need one success. But the fact that bless cards just basically never go away, it's, uh, it is it is way too powerful. But there are a lot of cards that are that way. You know, yeah. one extraction is super powerful, too. Yeah, that, that, was, that was one of the points that didn't quite make my top five, but like a lot of stuff about character and growth. But uh, picking up on another thing that you mentioned, which was the Mythos bag and kind of the uh, player balance, that's the number three for me. And that's another mixed... So, a lot of this review is tough for me because I am a big fan of Arkham Horror 2nd Edition and Eldritch Horror, and I've played both those games to death. So it's really hard for me to review this game just as a standalone. A lot of it feels like comparison to those, which I think is still a useful thing to do because a lot of people who might be interested in this game have probably played at least one of those other games. But that being said... The Mythos Bag is interesting compared to, uh, in previous versions of this game, how you would draw Mythos cards. On the positive side, I do think it's an interesting way to balance player count. Like Peter said, it's not perfect, but I think I think the problem is more in that each character is getting fewer turns and fewer upgrades. I think that's the bigger balance problem than the Mythos tokens themselves. I mean, yes, you are drawing more, but I think, like... You know, Peter used the example of five players. That's a pretty extreme one. I think any more kind of normal, like, two- or three-player game, it's not going to be that much more difficult than a single-player game. But I think each of those characters is going to be way less upgraded. Well, yeah, the reason I was pointing that out is, the, like, people were complaining about the five- and six-player being super hard and the lower-player count games being very easy. So yes. that that was kind of the cutoff. Yeah, I think three- or four-player is kind of the sweet spot for the difficulty of the game. Yes, and that that's true for a lot of these games. I mean, gosh, I think I think Eldritch and Arkham Horror 2nd Edition played to at least six and might have even claimed to, like, play to eight. I don't know anybody who would play any of these games with five or more players. I would never recommend it for any of them. Okay, but anyway, I'm getting away from myself. Another thing I like about the Mythos Bag is that it does give, and this is going to be a theme of this review, it gives a lot of predictability and tactical choice because you know the exact kind of tokens that can come out. You know how many of them there are. And a lot of it is based on the event card deck. Like, you can see which card is on top, and that gives you an idea of where this really devastating gate burst might happen. So you have, like, some tactical choice of how you interact with the game board based on uh, the the imperfect information you have about the Mythos bag. It's also really streamlined. Uh, you don't have to like read a ton of flavor text every turn. You just draw a few tokens. They're all really, really quick to resolve, and you move on with your life. The negative is that, kind of like my number four with the Doom tokens, it again feels like a bit of Euro thrown in what's kind of an Ameritrash thematic game and an Ameritrash thematic series overall, in that... It's it's almost a little too predictable, and also it lacks variety. Like, you're always going to draw the exact same number of monsters every time through the bag. Now, they're being randomly drawn from a deck, so you won't see the exact same monsters, but you know that exactly two monsters are coming out every, you know, X number of turns. And you know that exactly this much Doom is coming out X number of turns, and this many clues are coming out X number of turns. And in every other version of this game, and in a lot of, like, thematic games like this... 
there is more swinginess, but it can be that fun swinginess. Like, you can have a game where there's a ton of monsters. You can have a game where something never comes up for a while and you're really happy about it and you feel really lucky. And by making this consistent, I think it loses variability. And it's interesting to talk about this because this was a complaint for some people about our first published game, Salvation Road, in that we sought to have uh, predictability over really crazy, like, event-based choices. But whereas I had really, like, strong reasons, and we had really strong reasons for doing that in Salvation Road, here it feels like you've kind of lost some of the heart of the uh, the series by doing this. Yeah, I'm going to talk more about the Mythos phase later on, so I'll save my comments for then. But my number three is actually the theme of the episode, which is the story cards. You know, if I had not played so many games that had these story cards, I probably would have put this at the top of my list, and it, it may be near the top of your list. But it does a really good job, and some things I'm going to point out that it does really well. So the way the story cards work is at the beginning of the mission, it tells you, like, draw these three story cards out. And one of them is typically something that, like, you know, when you get eight Doom tokens, something really bad's going to happen. And one of them deals with the anomalies. Like, if there are three Doom tokens on a space, then it'll lead to an anomaly. That'll be the second card. And the third card will say something like, once you get three clues or two clues or five clues or whatever it is, like, then you progress this part of the story. And I like how clearly those areas that are, like, the rules text that you need to know are kind of boxed off. And they'll even have the symbol associated. So it'll either have a clue symbol or a doom symbol so you're like wait a minute what do i have to do with the clue tokens again or what do i have to do with the doom again so it's usually pretty clear what you need to do and they kind of box off the information they do have story information there as well and that's one of the cool parts about these story cards and again we're going to talk a lot more about this later so i'm not going to get too much into it but i did want to point out what i thought was unique to this game which is how they kind of box out the information you need while you're playing the game So I thought that was pretty cool. So my number three is the story cards. And that leads right into my number two, which is also the story cards and also just the kind of design of the scenarios themselves with the story cards being a major piece of that. But uh, you might be surprised. It's not a pro for me. It's a bit of a mix because I do see some negatives in how it's done here. I will agree with you that the graphic design is fabulous and really nice, really makes it simple. And since these cards kind of contain the primary objective information you need for a given scenario. It's nice that it's so clear and easy to see. So I I do like that the scenarios have really strong theme. The strongest theme I've ever seen in any of these Arkham Eldritch games. And they have a little bit of branching, like things might happen slightly differently each time you play it. It's very limited, though, in that way. Yes, that's true. And there's also a little bit of mystery in, like, what a card will reveal at least the first time you play a scenario and you won't know exactly what you need to do. And I really like the the difference in the goals in the scenarios I've played, like what you're doing. You know, it still falls down to the basics of stop Doom, get clues, fight monsters, but they have some very fun variations on that from scenario to scenario. Now, the two big cons that mess this up for me, and we'll talk about this more in the design discussion, so I won't get into it too much, But as Peter said, a lot of games have done these story cards, and I think these ones are not done the best because they will play out basically the exact same way every time with the exact same flavor text. And it's not a deal killer. I've played uh, one of the scenarios three different times, and it was still fun. It just became a bit more of a mechanical exercise because I didn't need to read the flavor text anymore. 
But it, it seems like in Arkham LCG, where they have a similar mechanic, they've done really nice things to vary up how scenarios play from time to time, at least giving you like two different plays of them. And they just didn't do that here, and it, it seems like a little bit of an odd choice. The other thing that is kind of unique to this series, but Arkham and Eldritch and all these games have always been very expandable, and the expandability has been in kind of a fun way. Like, you can play the exact same great old one you've played in the past, you can fight Yig again, but now you're going to fight Yig with these Egyptian monsters in the game, or now you're going to fight Yig, but with uh, these crazy new encounters and this new, like, city you can go to. And something interesting about these ones, and I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but you have the exact same monsters every time you play the scenario, like the exact same deck, and it's different than the deck of monsters you'll have for another scenario. You have the exact same clue cards. You have to have the exact same locations. uh, You have the exact same story cards. So it's odd in that I think except for, like, new items and new characters that'll be portable from one thing to another, I get the feeling that when they make expansions for this, you're not going to have that kind of modular aspect of being able to add some components to a previous scenario. I think we're just going to have new scenarios. And that's cool in a way, but it seems like it'll severely limit, again, the replayability and value of each scenario. And these are probably going to be, you know, by the previous standard of these games, these are probably going to be like 30 to 40 to $50 scenario-like packs and things that you'll buy. And if they only give me like two unique plays and then I'm kind of rehashing the same stuff for a big uh, expansion like that, I'm just kind of worried about the longevity of the series with the way they've done the scenario design overall. Yeah, I agree with all that you said. I didn't put that as one of my points. I was planning on covering this in my final thoughts, and I still will to a good extent. I think it's very expandable, and yet not very expandable all at the same time. And I agree that playing the same scenario is fun in the same way that playing Pandemic is fun, but I don't know that's the way it should be for an Arkham Horror game. Right. That's a great way to say it. All right, so my number two is the Monster AI. And I really like how they did this. I I mean, you said you loved how they did the clue tokens, and I really like that too. But for me, the Monster AI is one of the biggest strengths of this game. And I'm really growing to appreciate Monster AIs more and more as get into a lot of these dungeon crawl type games. This one's not a dungeon crawl, obviously. But, you know, these, these scenario-based games or whatever where you're fighting against monsters. I just really like the way they do it here. I like it when they simplify things, and they really have here. There's basically three types of AI. There's a hunter AI, which will say hunt the character with the highest, I don't even know what this is called, it's probably investigation, but eyeball talent, you know, or hunt the character with the lowest strength talent, or whatever it ends up being. So you know, just move that character, and it shows right on the front of the card how many spaces it moves, you know, that many spaces toward the character with that characteristic. And so it's just super simple. And then there's characters that patrol. And one of the cool parts is on the back of these cards, they... So when you're adding Doom to the board, it tells you what location to do it. And you pull this card up and you put it in the discard pile. And now that location becomes the unstable location. So wherever you added Doom last becomes unstable. And these monsters that patrol typically end up moving toward that location and kind of guarding that location. So a location that is more likely to get hit again 
ends up being something that they're guarding or, you know, someplace where you're really trying to remove those doom tokens become a place that these patrolling monsters guard. And then the third type are lurker monsters and they don't move anywhere at all. They just stay where they're planted and you're like, well, I can easily avoid them. But the problem with them is they do something bad to you. So they'll either add doom to their space or someplace around them or they'll add insanity to your characters or something else. So something every round when they activate, instead of moving, they do something bad to you. So you want to run over where those lurkers are and end up stopping them before they end up wrecking your whole game. I just like how simple the AI is. The monsters are really just there to kind of get in the way, but they also don't get in the way in the fact that they are not overly complicated to run while you're playing the game. So that's my number two is I just love how the monster AI works. Yeah, and that was my highest honorable mention. Like, that was literally my number six, and I was fighting about whether to keep that or uh, Clue Tokens as my, my number five. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's really clean, but it does differentiate the monsters quite a bit, and it's simple to resolve. It's definitely a nice system. Cool. So what's your big number one, Mike? Yeah, I, I struggled with this one. I, I struggled with this review overall, really. Like, probably the most of any game we've done recently. And it's also a game that... I'm glad you borrowed it for a while because my my overall thoughts have kind of evolved on it. But my number one is another mixed. I've I've had four mixed in a row. And that is uh, the encounter cards on locations and the locations and neighborhoods themselves. So let's talk about the positives first. So for those who have not seen, you don't have like one set board anymore like you did in Arkham Horror 2nd Edition or Eldritch Horror. Instead, you have these neighborhood tiles that you kind of connect together into this grouping of spaces to move between, each neighborhood having three locations on it, and then uh, having like little spokes that go out to other neighborhoods. I like the appearance of that. I, I don't mind that at all. And I, I like a lot, one of the problems with this series in the past for me has been the, the crazy addition of sideboards, and like you'll add Antarctica to the game, and suddenly like the game will be completely unbalanced. I think uh, doing the locations this way and not having one set board gives them a lot of modularity and variety in how they design future scenarios, and you should never get to the point where like the game becomes overly large or unwieldy because of that, so I, I do appreciate that. Another thing I like is that the encounter cards are the most predictable they have ever been. Like... In the past, you would know that if you go to Hibbs Roadhouse, there's an Arkham Horror 2nd Edition, like, you have a pretty good chance of being able to buy some food and heal. But here it's like, I mean, I haven't gone through and actually counted, but I get the feeling, like, every one of the encounter cards, the eight encounter cards for Hibbs Roadhouse, have you getting health back. Or, like, seven of eight. Like, some really high percentage of the cards are going to give you what is indicated on the location. Yeah, I've never had one not give you what was indicated, yeah, so like, I agree. I, th I think it's basically 100%. And they have really nice, clear iconography on the locations themselves that show you exactly what you can expect. So, again, in kind of a Euro way, but in a satisfying one, I can really specifically make choices as to where I move as I'm fighting people and getting clues and that kind of stuff to adapt to the changing challenge of the game and the obstacles that are presented to me. That's all cool. And I'd like to point out, too, that that also includes the clue cards. So if you go and you're solving a clue card, again, it's going to use whatever attributes it told you, and it's going to typically give you whatever benefits you were supposed to get at that location as well, as well as giving you the clue token. Yeah, absolutely true. Now let's get to the negatives, and they are fairly large. And actually, I would say that this one leans toward con. It's my number one, and it leans toward con. 
I don't like this. This goes back to number two in the scenarios. I don't like that it's the exact same locations every time I play the scenario, and that the number of locations in the base box are fairly limited. And it's sort of misleading. You have these five tiles, so you think you're getting 10 neighborhoods and 30 unique locations. But then you realize two of the tiles are, or two or three of them are replicated. So you only have like seven, I think, unique neighborhoods and 21 unique locations because they've repeated things on the back and front for who knows what reason. Yeah. And I, I found that very frustrating because I felt like I was getting less content than had sort of been implied when I looked at the game. And then also, I feel like one of the core things of these kind of thematically heavy mythos games is the fun of that encounter phase and seeing what crazy thing happens to you. And having almost the exact same effect every time I go to the same location, yes, they have variability of like what the card actually says, like, this time somebody will give me a free meal, and the next time I'll have to pay for the meal, but the waitress will smile at me, and the next time I can pay for a meal for me and my friend, you know? But it's all the same thing, and it very quickly becomes apparent that it's the same thing. And it's funny, when I first looked at the game, there's only eight encounter cards per uh, neighborhood, and I thought we were going to have a similar kind of Eldritch Horror problem where you immediately need the... You know, the, the first small expansion for Eldritch Horror just doubled the size of all the location decks. But here I don't think that would matter because unless they suddenly change the thing that makes the locations consistent in what they do, I, you know, I don't, a little bit more flavor text isn't going to make a difference. It's still going to feel like the same thing every time. And, and, and the other thing that's weird is, and, and this is a bigger thing, this is kind of a preview to my overall thoughts, but... Again, this is a comparison, and this game is so hard to review without comparing, so I apologize if you're, like, never played any of the games in this series before and just want a fresh take, but I, I got what I got. They are almost... They're, like, basically all positive. Like, your encounter phase is a positive phase. You will generally always get a bonus or nothing. Whereas in previous games, a lot of encounters were horrible thing happens to you, or if you roll well, a horrible thing does not happen to you. Here, it's like 99% of the time, great thing happens to you, or if you roll really badly, nothing happens to you. And it just leads to kind of like power leveling of characters, and it leads to... It, I don't know, it, it loses... Like, these games already kind of only flirt with the real Lovecraftian themes of, like, insanity and desperation... And I feel like you lose it even more here. It kind of plays into the overpowering of characters and the the over-positivity in how things happen to you in the game. Yeah, no, I can't disagree with anything you're saying. It's not on any of my points, but this was a very hard game for me to review as well because I have very similar feelings. And I, the more I play it, the more convoluted my feelings get for it. It's not even like they get more intensely one way or another. I play it with my son and I love it. And then I, you know, I played it again and I didn't have as much fun with it. And then I soloed it and, you know, it was way too easy. And so, yeah, I agree with you. So we're kind of getting to final thoughts. Well, let me get to my number one first, which is the mythos phase. And this is something you had already talked about, but I really thought this was pretty ingenious. So based on the number of players, like you draw two chits out of this bag and so the chits are anything from nothing happens to a reckoning, which means all these little reckoning tiles happen. So if you've ever played 
Arkham in the past, you know that a lot of cards will have Reckonings. Usually, like, if you make a Dark Pact, every time a Reckoning symbol comes up, then that'll happen. Reckoning also helps progress the game because you're adding Doom tokens. And we've complained a lot about this with other games. But this game always makes sure that the game is progressing forward, whereas in other games that we've complained about, you know, there's a way to remove these Doom tokens once they get on there. Well, that's not happening. So at least once every time you go through the bag, you're getting Reckoning, which typically progresses the game forward. Uh, you also have uh, gri- ga- what's called Gate Bursts. And so... When you're adding Doom to the board, you're usually drawing cards from the back of the event deck, and you're adding Doom to the one or two spaces that have this specific symbol there in these neighborhoods. Well, when you have a gate burst, you're adding the front card and adding Doom to all those locations, and then you shuffle those cards up and put them in the back. So it's very pandemic-like. I mean, I think we are you know, showing how Euro-y some of these mechanics are. But I really liked how they did that as well. Like, you know, took something great from Pandemic, which is shuffling the cards and putting them back on top. That's basically what you're doing here. So places that have had Doom in the past will tend to get it more often here in the future as well. Now, one of the other parts of that is when you get clues, those those event cards also are added into that discard pile. So now, not only is the clue giving you something positive, but it's also diluting that back of the deck, you know, think of Pandemic, if you could dilute that deck so that they weren't getting, the same places weren't getting hit over and over, well, that's what solving these clue cards does. It actually dilutes that back of the deck. So I thought that was kind of genius how they did that too. So I just really like how these Mythos tokens work, and I really thought that, you know, scaling it two per player was really going to work. Now, I did see some problems, again, with higher player counts where just too much bad stuff tends to happen at once. So if you think about it, you do these things in order. Maybe I draw a spread Doom card, which, you know, you draw from the back of the deck, and Doom spreads on the board. And then maybe my next card I draw is a Gate Burst at that same location. And then those two cards get shuffled, put in the back, and now, of course, you know, there's going to be more Doom spread to the same locations. So, I mean, it can be a good and a bad thing, and certainly it's not the end of the world if there is too much Doom at a location. Certainly it's going to speed you toward the end of the game in a negative way, but there are ways to deal with it as well and get it out. I do think there are some pros and cons to it, but I do think, you know, especially at that three or four player count, that it works exactly as intended and exactly as you want. And the other thing that I like about it, and there's nowhere in the rules written about this, so actually this kind of brings me to something that we've been talking about doing, which is doing some co-op cast variants, because, you know, we've talked about our variants for Deep Madness, we talked about our variants for Street Masters for simultaneous play, so, you know, we've got all these variants we've been talking about, so I do think we're going to put these out somewhere, probably on Board Game Geek somewhere, but... You know, it doesn't talk about this, but you can easily vary the difficulty, and they do this for other games, Arkham Horror LCG, for example, by adding or removing tokens. So there are blank tokens in the bag. You want to increase the difficulty, remove some blank tokens. In the current base set, they give you no way to increase or decrease difficulty, but there is an extra blank token. You can always add that in as well to decrease the difficulty if you're playing at some of these higher player counts. So there are ways to mess with the bag to change the difficulty up a little bit, and I kind of like that as well. So for me, the Mythos phase is mostly a positive, but again, I think it gets messed up at lower and higher player counts. So, you know, it does lead to some of that swinginess as well. All right. So let's get into our overall thoughts, and I think this is is probably for our listeners one of the more interesting ones because 
I think it's the less easy to tell how we feel about this game, right? I mean, I don't know how I feel, so good luck for you guys <laughs> figuring it out. Yeah, so I'll say when I first played this, uh, like a few quick plays in a row, I'm pretty sure I posted this on our Slack and uh, maybe some other places, but I said this is by far the best in this series, like better than Eldritch, better than Arkham Horror 2nd Edition. And I really liked, I'm a huge fan of Arkham Horror LCG, if you're a new listener, (laughs) otherwise you already know that. And I saw them bringing a lot of mechanics, almost like they were mashing Eldritch and Arkham Horror LCG together and taking a lot of pieces from each. That being said, I've, I've, I was about to say soured on the game, but it's not that negative, but I, I am, I am mixed on the game now, as you can kind of tell from my points. I think it has the most tactical kind of Euro-ish feel to any game in this series, and it still has good theme, it still has fun characters, it still has nice progression of your character, maybe even too nice when you're playing solo or two investigators. So I like all of that. I think that's really good. And, and Eldritch Horror already went in the direction of having giving more control and giving more tactics. This takes that even further. But I do think that you lose a ton of variety. You lose a ton of replay. I think this is a much less replayable game than any of the games that came before. And I'm sure Fantasy Flight doesn't mind that because they can sell expansions to you even faster. But I have less interest in playing against Azathoth here than I have playing in Azathoth in Arkham 2nd Edition or Eldritch. It just feels like... And and you're only getting four great old ones here, whereas I think in those old releases you would get, I think, at least six. So I, I do think you've lost a lot of replayability. I think you've lost a lot of variety. The encounters feel a little dead now, whereas they used to be kind of the most fun and goofiest part of the game. I don't think it's very expandable in the way that I want it to be. I've definitely been going towards modular games recently. If you if you listen to our top twenty episode, you'll know that both of my top games, my number one and number two, are very modular games. And this game feels like they've gone the exact opposite direction to zero modularity, and I don't really like that. And the way I'm kind of thinking about it, at first I said this was better than Eldritch. At this point, I think this game is trying to strike a weird middle ground of having lots of storyline but also having like lots of tactical kind of Euro-ish control. And I think they don't go well together. And I think if I want a tactical kind of more streamlined version of Arkham Horror, I'd rather play Eldritch Horror than this at this point. And if I want a story-based game, I'd rather play Arkham LCG. And Arkham LCG is just the better game anyway, because even replaying a story scenario that I already know really well, the mechanics of like building a deck and playing that deck are far more interesting than anything in this game. So, for somebody new to the series, I think I would recommend you get Eldritch and not get this. I, I feel like this is a game I might trade away or sell soon. Like, I, I've definitely gone down on it. It's not... It was going to be, like, near the top of my 2018 list, and it's it's not anymore. I'm not that excited to play it again. I will play it again, but I'm not excited about it. So it's a little sad. I, I and, and it's weird. I, I bought three Fantasy Flight games, like, all at once... Um, Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, Discover, and Heroes of Terranoth. And I think Heroes of Terranoth is probably the top of those. I, I've, I have major issues with both of the other ones, so not, not a great showing, for me at least, of Fantasy Flight at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, you bringing up the encounter thing really kind of got me thinking, 
And it's like, what is lackluster about this game? And, and you're right. It's that predictability of those encounters is really frustrating because, yes, some of them will say pay $1 to get a spell. And some of them will say draw the spells and pay their cost. And some of them will say get a spell and roll a challenge. And if you fail, you'll also take some horror or something else. But at the end of the day, you're still getting a spell when you're, when you're done there. And so, and it kind of tells you what you need. You either need money or you need, you know, brain power, whatever it ends up being. So you're right. That makes it a little lackluster. But here is where I'm going to shine a little light because I'm mixed on the game too. And and in all honesty, as far as the base game goes, I mean, I'm going to play it more. I think it's a really good intro game. My son and I are having a ton of fun playing it. And, and I think that's where it is. It's, it's living with the 11-year-old, you know, playing with your 11-year-old audience. And we're having a ton of fun. Yes, there's a little bit of, not mature content in there, but there's cultists. You know, there's there's things that not everybody is going to be happy with in this game. But if you're playing an Eldritch game or an Arkham game, you know that's in there. But of these games, I think this is probably the one my son and I are having the most fun with. So I do think there is an audience for that because of the simplicity of rules and the simplicity of you're just kind of doing challenges and it's pretty easy to figure that stuff out. But here's where I'm going to vary from what you just said. I think this game has a huge potential for when it expands. As you were saying, typically these boards are very modular there can be a ton more boards added without adding complexity. So, so far from what I've seen, there's always five boards, but you could go down to four boards that you're playing with. You could go up to six, seven, eight boards that you're playing with. I don't necessarily want that because I don't want a lot of extra space. As you said, I don't love when the expansions expand the map as well, typically, but I don't think that any place on this game is that complex that it would matter that much. But more importantly than that, Here's what I think they could change. I think they could change the story cards that are already in there. Now, maybe they're not going to do that backward compatibility, but now let's say they realized their mistake and realized how linear each of these missions are and decided they want to make them more divergent. They could go back and give you one or two new story cards per mission. Well, it probably need to be like five or 10 per mission and really make that story diverge the way that Arkham LCG does. I mean, I think they could do that. They say, hey, replace number one with this one and add in cards, you know, 60, 61, 62, whatever. They could go back and do that. And Fantasy Flight is typically pretty good at going back at their older games and making them better. So I feel like even if they don't go back and fix the first four missions, I feel like going forward, they're going to figure that out. Maybe they'll add some new cards into each of those decks to make it a little bit more swingy so it's not as predictable. So I think they can do some things to fix it. I don't think it's as far off as it feels right now for you. But I also think right now it isn't the best of the series. I agree with you. I'd rather play Eldritch. I'd rather play Arkham LCG. But I do think this has its audience also in the fact that it's a lot easier game to play, simpler actions, and your turns feel like they're going really fast. So for me, that's what makes it a positive. Yeah, so a bit of a mix there. Uh, I guess <laughs> make your own decision. We, we, we don't fully recommend the game or, or fully not recommend it. Yeah, I think the uh, year-end episode next year is going to be really interesting because you know there'll be a couple of expansions by then and, and it'll be interesting how they change it. Absolutely. All right, so let's get into our design discussion, which is going to be about those story cards that were in games. 
The first game I played that ever had story cards was a little game called Oh My Goods. And I only bought this game, and it's a little Euro card game, and I only bought it because the expansion that came out gave you story cards. And basically what these story cards did were they give you a little bit of story, a little bit of narrative, and you know, in this little Euro game, all they did was change the end victory conditions and maybe change some of the starting conditions as well, or what your goods did that round, you know, which ones were more valuable than others. So it was very minor changes to gameplay. But it really opened my eyes to a lot of possibility with these story cards. And I know I bought it and I called Mike right away. And he actually never still played that game with me. <laughs> That's true. But I, I was so excited by this concept. And I, I knew that it was going to become greater things. And I mean, games like Charterstone do that now from our friend Jamie Stegmeyer. Obviously, all the Arkham games, well, the newest ones, Arkham 3rd Edition and Arkham LCG does it. It's just really neat what you can do with a deck of cards that we never thought of in the past. And I'll say it's not its not necessarily some kind of unique thing. I think a lot of games in the past would have put these same sort of feeling things in a book with, like, numbered entries or that kind of thing. But the ease of use and being able to have cards to reference as you're playing the game, like you can in Arkham 3rd Edition, does make, I think, the use of cards way better, even though it's probably more challenging from a publisher standpoint and organizing all those things. Yeah, no, I think there's two big benefits to it. Number one is you're kind of pulling something out of a deck. Yeah, kind of. You are pulling something out of a deck. And that makes you feel cool. It gives you that legacy type feeling. You know, yes, you can look up journal entries, but maybe you'll accidentally read the wrong one or you might see something you're not supposed to see. It feels like pulling it out of a deck really gives you that, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be looking at. And like, I'm not really seeing any spoilers for anything else. There's no pictures I'm going to run into. You can add art to these cards now, which, you know, gives you a unique feel to them where, you know, you're not going to spoil yourself for something later by, you know, oh, I'm looking at the other half of the journal and I can see what's coming up. So I think that's one huge benefit. The other huge benefit you just pointed out is you can have rules on these cards, which can change throughout the game. And you know, you don't want to do you don't want to overuse this because you don't want to have too many hundreds of rules that people are going to have to remember and they're going to have to reference all the time. But if you have one or two rules tweaks, it really makes it so that you can do unique things and you can have surprises throughout the story. And so that's what I like about these decks of cards and how they're doing it now. And it's so easy. You say go to card 14, go to card 21. Like it's really easy to organize and still keep secretive from people. Yeah, and another thing you can do with the cards, and I, I really recommend people do this, like if, if people are designing games with this element, is what uh, Arkham LCG does and what Peter suggested Arkham Third might do, which is having multiple card ones or having multiple card fives and shuffling them together and randomly drawing which one you're going to have to kind of build in replayability while still having this very kind of prescribed, scripted progression of cards. Yeah, Discovery does that really well. Yep, yep, Discovery. That's that's another one that does this as well. So Fantasy Flight's certainly using this pretty heavily in some of their recent releases. And this is something we're doing for some of the missions in our current game that uses this mechanic as well. I think it's a nice way to simplify things. And it is a big advantage over the old ways, another big advantage over the old way of having this kind of stuff in a numbered booklet, almost like choose-your-own-adventure style. Tales of the Arabian Nights sought to do the same kind of thing, in that, for those who have played the game, it would tell you to go to entry 250, 
but you'd roll a d6, and on a 1 to 2, you'd go 1 lower to 249, and on a 5 to 6, you'd go 1 higher to 251. So they did have variety there, but it's very clunky variety, and you need to have tons and tons of, like, pages to flip through. Just having, like, the little step of shuffling two cards up and randomly selecting one of the two of them at the beginning of the game is such a simpler way to do it. And and that's just, you know, it, with the rules thing Peter and I already mentioned, cards for your story elements just, just give a general ease of play and a general streamlining that is going to be hard to beat for any of these kinds of games. Well, and Arkham 3rd Edition does a good job of this, and I know we're doing this as well, and I don't want to give too many spoilers for our game, but there are also ways to change up the enemies in there. Change up, like Arkham has event cards that you add to the event decks in there. So there's cool things you can do with story and not make it fiddly. So you don't say, okay, look at this event card and now go find this card in some other deck. It's right there. You say, pull out card 22 and card 22 is something you just add to a deck. So it's really easy. You can add stuff in the story cards which you typically wouldn't be able to do in a book. Because again, you can change up the playing pieces that people are playing with. Maybe somebody starts out with a Tommy gun and their Tommy gun gets better if they do something cool or whatever else. I mean, you know, I haven't seen that per se, but certainly the possibilities are out there for a lot of cool stuff you can do with those event decks. Yeah, and Peter, you were right comparing it to a legacy feel without the legacy element. Because you can do a lot of stuff that legacies do, and almost in a more organic, simple way. Because a lot of legacies, like I'm thinking of Pandemic Legacy, they might have something that happens in the middle of a mission, but often the big reveals are during setup or do it during uh, cleanup. And, uh, you know, like another game I'm playing right now, Dawn of Peacemakers, that's mostly the same thing. It's all like you get new cards every start of mission, and that's like the main time these things show up. But if you have the consistent expectation that your players are looking through a numbered deck throughout the game and that they're kind of expecting that, you can do really fun things like surprise enemies might show up in there, surprise uh, positive cards might show up in there, like new items and things, and, and that's all really fun. I think you can play around with your players during gameplay more with these, more so than at least so far I've seen with most legacy games where it's kind of like open a box or open an envelope at the beginning of a mission. Now, one caution with this, though, is you don't want to have 50 different cards up in front of them where they got to be looking at all these things. When does this one trigger? When does that one trigger? Arkham has like three cards up at a time, and I think that's really the maximum you'd want to have. I'd have a hard time seeing where you'd want more cards than that face up where you're looking for triggers on them. And they have a nice consistency in Arkham 3rd Edition where... One or two cards will always be the basic get this many clues, don't get this much doom card. So really your attention is only on one or two cards at a time, so it's even more streamlined. And yeah, I think that that's a big thing. So in general, like these kind of cards will either be something that has a permanent effect or an immediate effect. And just as you're planning out, you know, just try to uh, make sure that the permanent effects are few and far between. And a lot of stuff is just resolved and then get rid of this card. And that goes into another caution about this, and this is something I've been encountering because I'm, I'm I tend to be the main uh, writer for our games, so I'm kind of the one diving into these cards the deepest. And you know, you, you got to be used to the spreadsheet. Like, if you've been a, a role playing DM or game master, and you've had to like figure out the if then kind of logical sequence of how things happen in an adventure, 
or if you like choose your own adventures and you've you've maybe even made your own choose your own adventure that's all going to prepare you well for designing this kind of thing because especially if you have branching paths now it's easy if you don't but if you do then you might need to know like okay so if if this happens then four but if this happens then five but if that happens then seven but uh if i have seven then they never found out about this so i have to repeat that instruction but then I should not say this on 8 because that never actually happened if they did this path to get 8. But, oh, crap, they can also get to 8 from that other path. So I do need to say this. So maybe I can't have 8 anymore. Now I need 8 and 9 because they need to be split. Even though they say the exact same thing, there's one major difference. So just be aware for game designers and writers and everything that you are biting off... Well, depending on how ambitious your design is. But for, I think, these cards being done well, you are biting off a lot to make everything work. Now, you can simplify that. I'm not even sure if you would consider a game like Spy Club, where you start each scenario with like kind of a story card based on previous things you've done. I don't know if that you would call that the same thing, but it is a numbered deck that you're referring to. Sure. So there, they've, they've gone a lot away from the theme. Like, it's a pretty simple little thing that you do. But there, it's a, it's a one-off effect that's a universal effect just for that one scenario. You don't really look at anything else throughout the entire scenario. So there it is, a little bit like just opening an envelope at the start of a scenario. And that's certainly a much easier design ask for yourself. So, you know, if you're a designer and want to do this, maybe start there with the simpler version of just one or two permanent cards for the entire mission. And then, uh, depending on how things happen, they might get different numbered cards for the next mission or next game. But yeah, I think that's definitely an easier thing to do than the branching thing. Although the branching provides a lot of fun options and replayability you don't have otherwise. Yeah, and I mean, before we went to the story cards, which has been a more recent iteration of the game, still the same story was there. We were telling the story as you go to a new room, you'd need to read a new paragraph out of the book. But the cards just allowed us to branch the story so much more. And it's just amazing the difference in feel of the game since we've kind of gone to the story cards. It really does feel so much more thematic, so much more immersive. And you can play with their emotions, so you know, the players' emotions, so much more than you can, I, I think, by reading passages out of the book. For me, it really is, if you're going to do one of these campaign games, I would strongly consider doing it. I think Mike's right. There are a lot of different paths you can go down. Even if you make it more linear, I think that would be okay. But certainly, it allows you to branch it out as much as you want to. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Any other cautions, concerns you see with this? Because we've been kind of glowing. I know we've pointed out a couple of concerns. But any other cautions you see with these story decks? No, I, I, I'm really excited by them. I just think, like, clearly we were inspired by the idea, and I, I'm seeing so many games doing different variations of this, and I think it is related to the big growth in legacy gameplay and unlocking gameplay and scenario-based kind of increasingly complex games, and I love all of that. You know, I, I don't know if you trace this to, like, Pandemic Legacy for the first time, because I think some other games had similar sort of things going on. But I just love the offer that all these things have of simplicity with increasing complexity with theme. Absolutely. Like I can teach a small number of rules or you could have a small number of rules to pay attention to at a given moment. It's a really simple and still immersive way to obtain the chrome of huge, crazy, rulebook-heavy Ameritrash games and thematic games without 
all the drawbacks of that chrome. He can have these incredibly thematic little, like, mini events and things, but not have to memorize 20 rules exceptions for it. Yeah, or use tables and other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm really... I'm really excited about it. I'm glad the game industry has, like, gone this way, basically. And I, I want to see where they, they keep on going and, you know, where we go with our own game. I'm I'm still excited to uh, to see how everything goes. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm very much positive on the way these are going now. I do think that somebody can do it wrong. Certainly, if you forget to end one of the narratives or the storylines, that would be bad. Certainly, (laughs) if you don't make them all attractive, that would be bad, because what's the point of adding variety if not all the paths are going to be equally attractive? So I I do think if you're going to have branching narratives, just make sure people are going to go down those branches. Like, why wouldn't you have that in there? If you're going to add the cards to do that, why wouldn't you make it? equally attractive to do one or the other or force people down a path you know if there's a less attractive path well every once in a while if you're not doing so well or if you're doing too well throw them down that negative path every once in a while there's just so much you can do with it that i really am excited to see what other people come up with i know we've come up with some really neat things that i think haven't been done before with these story decks and so we're super excited to see where other people take them as well absolutely Cool. Well, that's going to end it for this episode of Co-Opcast. Yeah, thanks, everyone. And have uh, we, we've had, as we said in our Top 20 episode, we've had an amazing year. A lot of that is thanks to the great responses we've got on podcast comments, on the YouTube channel, One Stop Co-Op Shop, on our Slack. Please join our Slack. So just one more time to kind of repeat ourselves a little bit. Thanks for an amazing 2018 and... Really looking forward to all the games we'll cover, all the people we'll interact with, our own games coming out. Just a lot of exciting stuff. One more thing I'm going to ask before we get off this episode is please rate and review us on whatever podcatcher you're listening to, whether it's iTunes, wherever else. Give us five stars or whatever the top rating is or whatever you feel we deserve. We're certainly not going to ask for ratings you don't think we deserve, but please take the minute to go out of your day and do that. If you write a review along with it, we read all of those. We certainly appreciate those as well. But I haven't asked for that in a while, so I figure it's a good time to bring it up again. So if you get a chance to do that, we totally appreciate that. And we appreciate all of you guys for listening and tuning in every week. Absolutely. Have a great year, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-op Shop. And follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-op Cast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Kind of reminds me, I'm an old Buffy the Vampire fan, and they would... Wait, Buffy the Vampire. Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Thank you. I was like, wait, she's not a vampire. (laughs) Hey, Mike. Yeah? I don't have a close for this one. (laughs) That's the best one of all. Bye.